it's like the stuff that we get into fire for is the stuff that we like question every decision we've ever made when we're doing it. When we're in the midst of like a really hard shift, you're kind of like, what am I doing? Why on earth did I choose to do this? And then you get to the end of the shift and it's very satisfying and you're like, oh, that was so sick. I can't wait to do it again. And you wake up the next day and you do it again. And it's like, if you're not questioning your decision-making every like, like every couple of hours on a hard shift on a fire, then you're probably doing it wrong. Hello, everyone. Shanti here. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. This is episode 37. For today's show, we're going to be talking about a very important wilderness subject that seems to be more and more relevant every year. Wildfires. As California's Dixie Fire escalates to the third largest wildfire in state history and smoke envelops much of the U.S., including here in Salt Lake City where I can barely see to the end of my street from all the smoke, we're once again confronted with the question, how did we find ourselves in such a dire strait? And maybe more importantly, what can we do? Well, former wildland firefighter, writer, and host of the Life with Fire podcast, Amanda Montai, took some time to sit down with Abby to lift up the curtain on this potent and misunderstood force. In a far-reaching discussion, Amanda gets into why she was drawn to fighting fire, the physical and psychological training needed to make it onto a coveted hotshot crew, and why she ultimately left the profession. She also flips many common wildfire scripts on their head. Turns out, wildfires are not inherently bad. Amanda sheds light on why fire is vital to our ecosystems, what we can learn from indigenous fire management practices, and how we can take back some control of how fire revitalizes the landscape. So we have a lot that's being discussed today with Amanda, and we're going to get into that in just one second. But first, we ought to let you know, as we descend into the heart of wildfire season, you'll be able to steer clear of active fires and smoky air using Gaia GPS's extensive list of wildfire, smoke, and air quality maps, which are available to all Gaia GPS users. Wildfire, current, and satellite maps show you where fires are actively burning throughout the U.S. and Canada. You can use these in tandem with the smoke forecast and air quality forecast maps in order to steer clear of smoky, polluted air. And you can also use Gaia's historical wildfire map to see how previous year's wildfires impact the terrain and ecology of your next trip. And by the way, as a little side note on today's show, Amanda also digs into all of the incredible natural treasures and signs of new life you can find when passing through a burn scar. All these maps and many, many more are available for you when you get yourself a Gaia GPS Premium Membership. And right now, if you go to GaiaGPS.com podcast, you can get 20% off on a Gaia GPS Premium Membership. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S dot com slash podcast. All right, everyone, I invite you all to sit back or hit the trail and let's get into it with Amanda Montai. I'm Amanda Montai. I am a, I'm a freelance writer and podcast producer slash host of Life with Fire podcasts, which explores the, the role that fire plays in America's forests, lands, and communities. The essence of it is just talking to experts and stakeholders and practitioners and indigenous folks and other people who are impacted or have a deep relationship with wildfire in any capacity, whether it's academic or personal lived experience. I fought fire until 2019. I was on a an engine to start and then a hand crew. And then I was on a hotshot crew for two seasons. So I did four seasons with the Forest Service and then just recognized that um, I have this writing background. I've been writing for about 10 years in a freelance capacity mostly, 
And I saw that there was maybe a little bit of a hole there in terms of being able to um, communicate about wildfire in a way where I had on the ground experience. I knew a lot of folks in the fire world and in the fire community and felt like I was in a really unique position to write uh, some, I guess, more narrative driven and reality driven, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. stuff about wildfire. And otherwise, I am a ski patroller in the winter and I do some uh, work on wildfires in the summer now with the, like the public information shop. So kind of doing, I call it like the PR of wildfires where you're kind of like uh, updating social media and kind of crafting um, crafting updates for the communities that are impacted by the fires and uh, kind of doing that side of things, which is very different. But it's been fun to braid my interest in fire with my background in writing. Yeah. So cool. Okay. There's so much to unpack there. I know. I'm sorry. Let's, I like no, am all great. over the board. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it just it really illustrates how complex of a topic this is. And before we really unpack it, I'm curious, what initially sparked your interest in wildfires? I had a couple girlfriends actually. Um, for a while, the only people I knew who fought fire out West were, were women. And they were women that I went to, to college with at Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan. So that's not really like a wildfire zone. Like we don't really have wildfire in our worldview in the Midwest. You're from that area too? Yep. I'm from Michigan. Growing up there, I didn't really have wildfire in my consciousness. I really didn't think about it at all until my friends started going out West for fire seasons in college and they had really cool photos and stories. I was just really infatuated almost with it. I was thinking about it a lot. Eventually I was like, I should just look into how I can get into this. And that was in 2015. And I started applying for jobs that fall and got on with an engine in Northern Idaho in 2016. But it was almost exclusively because I had like three women that I knew that were close friends in college who came out and did it. And I don't know who their influence was, but like if I had not known them and if I had not seen them doing it, I would have never chosen to do it. I would have never even had the idea to do it. What about the stories they were telling you sparked that interest? They were fighting fires in really remote corners of the U.S., whether it was like Alaska or Wyoming or California. Their images were amazing, just like photos from helicopters, photos of retardant drops, their experiences of it being challenging and physically and mentally preparing for something that difficult uh, seemed really exciting to me. And so I, that was what really drove me in the first place was that I was kind of in this lull where I had graduated college three years prior and I was working for like a couple of local newspapers, like not really doing much with myself. I had been an athlete in high school. I had been like a, a runner in high school and I had been climbing and skiing and doing all these things since college. I really wanted that sort of physical and mental challenge that I wasn't getting from anything else. So I, I think that was what really kicked it off was just seeing like that they were like seeing this challenge, meeting the challenge and actually like really excelling at this job, um, mm -hmm. despite like the societal expectations of women in fire jobs. It was like not really a big, big deal at all that they were women. They were just, they were still kicking ass at it. So I thought that was pretty rad. Yeah, seriously. And there must be something that's really holistically satisfying about using your brain and using your body in, in such an extreme way. Yeah. It really hit on a lot of like pretty essential human needs. So like you have the manual labor, you have like the working outside, you have like the sort of meditative element of just swinging a tool for hours on end. And then you also have like the sort of camaraderie and like the relationships that you build when you're all just like working really hard and um, 
and kind of like struggling in some capacity. Sometimes the, the crew is getting hungry and tired and frustrated and somebody's having a fight with their wife. And then that's that dynamic is sort of brought into the crew and you all have to kind of like deal with these different frustrations that everyone has through the summer uh, as they come up. That's something that you don't really experience anymore. You know, a lot of the time you go to work, you're frustrated with your coworkers, then you just leave at five o'clock and you don't have to deal with them all night. You can kind of like remove yourself. But in fire, you're very much just with these people every day, sometimes for 130, 140 days a summer on active incidents, let alone you're only really getting two days off every couple of weeks. So you're really with these people all the time. And and making sure that those dynamics stay like healthy and communicative is like pretty difficult, but it's also really satisfying when you nail it. And when you get on a crew where it's second nature, where it's really easy to communicate with everybody and really easy to work through those frustrations. That's a side of it. I think most of us in the general public don't think about that. Mm -hmm. The very human side of these physical jobs, mm-hmm. where it's not just about the physical challenge or even the mental challenge of the mitigation or putting out the fire. It's how are we interacting with our peers, our coworkers? Yeah, it's like something that's really not touched by anything else that I can, that I've been able to figure out anyway, since getting out of fire in 2019, I haven't really been able to find it. But, you know, I think, um, in some capacity, I think endurance running, like like long distance ultra running. I know a lot of people in fire who do that and kind of crave that level of physical challenge and mental challenge. I think that kind of touches those things, but there's not a lot that really fulfills the camaraderie that you experience on those crews. It's unlike anything else that I've ever found. And I, I doubt that there's any other real environment other than maybe the military or maybe some other environment where you're really like closely connected to these other 20 people or whatever, and not only connected to them, but like kind of relying on them for your safety and for your sanity. It's a really rare dynamic that you don't really run into very often. It kind of sounds like being on a a high school or a college team, athletic team, but on steroids. Like totally. I can see the appeal. Can can you walk us through exactly what that first summer looked like? Uh, I was in Northern Idaho. From the get-go, I wanted to get on a hand crew or on a hotshot crew. That was what I was anticipating when I got into fire. So just for like kind of a background, like hand crews and hotshot crews generally are like the ones that are out digging line. It's usually like a 10 to 20 person crew. So they have the numbers game going on their side. And then they're often the ones that are out hiking into the fire or getting flown into the fire. And it's a resource used generally for burnouts, things on the ground that don't require water. At the end of the fire, when you want to get all the hot spots out, you go out and you like nail down anything that's remaining or smoking or hot still. And you kind of like dig it up and bury it. It's mundane. It's monotonous. So all these like little, both mundane and like more glorious tasks are often given to the hand crews and hotshot crews just basically because they are qualified to do those things and they have the numbers to do them well and quickly. But I was on an engine crew my first summer, which is where you're kind of attached to one of the engines. You see these all the time, like these big green engines, they carry 500, 700, 800 gallons of water. Sometimes you can go out on a crew, like a throw together crew of like people from other parts of the district that you don't know, which is always kind of weird because you don't know these people. And so you're going out for a two week assignment with 15 people that you've never met before. And you kind of like develop these relationships really quickly. And uh, so that was what that summer looked like for me. It was like working on this engine and doing a lot of uh, work off of forest service roads where you're just spraying and you're kind of staying close to those forest service roads. And then, um, and then going out on a couple of hand crew assignments with a, a 
They're called throw together crews from around the district. So people that I had never met before. So once I went out on that assignment and, and I recognized that hand crew work was like what I really wanted to do, I got on a hand crew the following summer in central Idaho. And I absolutely loved that job, but it was a 10 person module. And we did a bunch of work in the Frank Church Wilderness, which was really sweet. We've got flown into the Frank Church Wilderness on the middle fork of the salmon and then floated off that fire, which is like like an all-time, that doesn't happen very often, fire assignment. That's It was really, really cool. Um, so a lot of the fires that we went on that summer, we had to get flown into and often either floated off of or like jet boated off of or something like that. I want to take it a step up. And so I, I went on a, I went out and tried to find a shot crew to work with, a hot shot crew. And I found one who um, wanted to take me on. And it was, it was based out of Mount Hood National Forest. I worked with them for two years and that was kind of the work that I'd been seeking since I started in fire. I was just afraid of getting right into being on a hotshot crew because I wasn't sure if I was prepared for it, like from a fire standpoint of like having the qualifications necessary. So I'm glad I had those first two seasons, but I think physically like the challenge of being on a hotshot crew was what I was looking for, like from the start. So for the first two years, the engine and you called it hands, hand crew, and crew, were those mostly putting out fires themselves? And then hotshot is a combination of more mitigation and really being in the heart of putting out the fires. I'm just, I'm trying to differentiate. It's hard different- to differentiate. Yeah. Okay. Engines, you're the water supply. Like no matter what you do, it's almost like everything you do is associated with getting water to the edge of the fire. So if that means the edge of the fire is 500 feet up a hill from the road, then sometimes that means carrying a 75 pound pump on your back up a hill or whatever, not even up a hill, down a hill to a creek and then and then bringing hose all the way up that hill and all the way up the hill above you to the, the fire line. You're just responsible for kind of getting water to the fire line. Hand crew or like modules, 10 person modules, you know, those are often crews that go into more remote fires. Uh, there's things called wildland fire modules. And those are folks that go into these smaller fires in more remote areas. And they're, you know, a lot of the time they're, they're doing managed wildfires. So they're just going out there and keeping an eye on things. And if things get out of hand, then they'll kind of step in and perform a burnout or start digging line or kind of controlling the fire as they want it to be controlled. But a lot of the time they're out in these remote areas where fires can be more managed. So you're allowing it to burn as it normally would, and then just kind of like pushing it where you want it to go with with certain tactics. Um, that's another simplified version. And then hotshot crews are kind of, uh, they're often used on bigger incidents. So not those remote you know, middle of the middle of the woods fires. Well, they're often still in the middle of the woods, but you know, they're larger fires. They're like the 50, 60,000 acre fires that you see in the news or hundred thousand or 200,000 acre fires. They're the ones that are nationally available and they are sent out to um, those big type one, we call them incidents or type two incidents um, that require a lot of resources. And you're doing mostly on the mostly groundwork, like digging line or performing uh, burnouts where you're kind of burning out the fuel between your line and the for in the in the fire itself. So a lot of like, like I said, a lot of glory work, and then a lot of really mundane work. And so digging a line, is mm-hmm. that just to stop the fire from going past wherever that line is? Yeah, I, you, you keep using the phrase, so I want to make sure yep. I understand. Totally. What it is. Totally. Yeah, it's uh, it's mostly to stop ground fire. So anything burning in like grasses or even brush, um, nothing that's once things get into the sort of the trees, like and they climb up into the crowns of trees, you have you have what's called a crown fire or, um, you know, just a fire that's really moving and it's and it's really extreme and there's nothing you can really do from the ground to help that. But if you have 
you know, a tree here or there torching out, you know, burning, um, then you can still usually kind of keep things under control with a, with a line. And that's usually like mm -hmm. a, you know, 30 foot buffer where the guys will dig, uh, guys, girls will, uh, you know, cut out a bunch of brush or cut out any brush or limbs or trees or anything else in that 30 foot or 20 foot or 40 foot buffer um, so that the fire doesn't have any brush to jump over the line on. And then in the middle, you know, if it does end up creeping through the grass that remains, then you have your two foot wide hand line in the trail or in the, I'm sorry, in the middle of that buffer or in the, on the side of that buffer, that's uh, two feet wide down to mineral soil. And that's going to stop any ground fire from creeping across the line. So you're stopping mm. the vegetation from burning by cutting it out with chainsaws. And then you're stopping it from creeping along the ground with your line. But that only is effective, like I said, for like for fires that are um, not in the canopy of the of the trees yet. I have one more question about getting on the hotshot crew. Mm -hmm. Did you have to pass any uh, exams for that? Is there certain training that goes into it? Or because we're, you were already in this world, you had a different avenue in. Yeah. If you're coming on as somebody fresh into the fire world, you're going to have a really hard time getting on without having something else, whether it's like, like ex exceptional physical, um, whatever, exceptional uh, fitness or an EMT. I would say even more so than fitness is like having your EMT or having your CDL or having some sort of like mm -hmm. other certificate certificate that's going to like assist the crew because if you're fresh and we call it green then you're going to require a lot more of the supervisor's time and they often only hire one or two truly green people a year if that usually it's yeah. usually it's zero i had two years that's then that's the general sort of pipeline is getting two years of fire experience on other kinds of crews before you get on a hotshot crew and that just uh kind of assures that you have a basic understanding of fire behavior a basic understanding of kind of fire operations and how things generally operate. Cause then once you show up to a shot crew, they have a very different way of operating most of the time. And so they don't want you to be too, it's, it's weird. Of course they want you to have an experience as much experience as possible, but um, the more experience you have on different types of crews, the more the work they have to do to kind of craft you in their like particular way for that particular crew, because they all have very, very specific ways that they operate. And um, I can imagine that being really difficult if you have, six or seven years on a different type of crew on, on a crew that's not a hotshot crew. So that's all in the weeds, but, uh, basically, yeah. So I trained, I, I did my two seasons on other crews. I was training kind of physically training all season for both of those. So I was already in a good place to start training for getting on a hotshot crew. And then I was just, I just trained really hard that winter physically and, um, felt like mentally prepared for it. And then I showed up and of course I like, you know, I had a hell of a time my first season, everyone does. Uh, but it's kind of part of the process and it's kind of fun to look back on now. What did that training look like in the winter? Uh, mostly I would hike with, I would hike with weight a lot. And what that looked like for me, just based on what I was already doing was going out ski touring. Um, and there's, I ski at Mount Baker and there's this boot pack up to uh, what's called the shucks and arm. And it's right out of the ski area. And the boot pack is about uh, it's about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on what line you want to ski. And so that would require me to have my 10 to 20 pound backpack full of all my avalanche gear and like a layer and like food on. And then my skis over my shoulder and then boot packing up this like pretty steep incline. 
And so I did that as much as possible that first winter before my hotshot season. It was really helpful with the with the types of muscles that you use when you're hiking chainsaws up steep slopes. That's essentially all you're doing is you have something over your shoulder and you're walking up a steep slope. So I did that boot pack as much as possible. And I really think that was really beneficial. And then I was touring like two to three days a week on my skis because it's like not fun to go and walk in the rain in Western Washington winters, you know, go walk in the rain with your 40 pound pack on. So I found kind of other ways to get those muscles moving. And then come spring, it just turns into like running a bunch and always doing strength work. I'm not somebody that goes to the gym. So my strength work was really going to a climbing gym and climbing and doing pull-ups and doing workouts at the climbing gym. And that's what I always tell people is like, if you don't like going to the gym, you could find other options, especially if you live in outdoor towns, you know, there are other, other options for working out and getting in hot shot shape, whatever. So that was where I got like, you have to be able to do seven on my crew. We had to be able to do seven pull-ups. Um, and so that was where I kind of got that, uh, got that strength from was just going to the climbing gym and practicing my pull-up strength by climbing and having fun doing it. And then of course, after climbing, I would go and just do like, uh, do sets of pull-ups or, uh, whatever I needed to do that day with leg workouts. So yeah. And then running and just trying to find steep hills to run up. That was always really helpful and just getting your cardio into a place where, uh, you our our standards are like not insane. Like I think anybody that goes to the gym regularly or anybody that like runs regularly would be able to to hit our standards. It's it's 25 push-ups, 40 sit-ups, and seven pull-ups. And the first two are in a minute. You have to be able to do those in a minute. And then our mile and a, we have to do a mile and a half run in 10 minutes and 30 seconds. So I think you know, that's decently fast. Of course, you have to you have to kind of excel beyond those usually. It's funny. I think you probably have a slightly skewed view like I do living in a mountain town. Totally. Where, oh, yeah, of course, everyone can run a mile. I and know a half and- it's it's like maybe a little ableist of me just because I do. I have all these friends that are so fit and like regularly just go out and like, you know, tore up Baker and are like, this is something that they do casually. And like, I'm not really super casual about that anymore. But um, yeah, I just am surrounded by all these people that are really in shape. I don't know. It's a little skewed. Oh, your normative framework and it, yes, uh-huh. it is skewed depending on who you surround yourself with. Totally. I, I love though that you were able to make the training so fun and also functional for what was fun to do in the winter totally. in Washington. What was the most surprising thing that you learned during all of your time in mm-hmm. working wildland firefighting um most surprising thing I learned let me think about this I think I learned a lot about myself that was surprising I think like when you're in your first season on a shot crew and you're being told like every day that you're doing something wrong I was never told like you don't belong here and I was never told like you know you're inept but I was told like you're messing up or this isn't how we do things or do better. And like taking those daily sort of failures, literally daily, if not like three or four times a day, I'm like a total people pleaser. And I've never been in an environment where somebody's been constantly telling me that I'm doing things wrong. It's usually like, okay, well, like, like an editor, like, okay, like this isn't quite coming across like how you want it to, or like, this isn't exactly what I'm looking for. Like really like sort of soft uh, criticism versus like, Uh, versus like, you aren't doing what we want you to do, like you need to do better, or like, this is not, this is not how this works, or, you know, being like, kind of criticized on a more explicit level, and like, sometimes feeling like your character is being criticized, and then recognizing that, like, they don't, 
think about it afterwards. Like people in that world, they criticize, they like, they tell you what you're doing wrong and they tell you to change it. And then they don't think about it again. That was a huge thing for me. It was just like getting over how people think about me or like getting over like that criticism, that initial criticism. Um, and recognizing that it was like for the betterment of the of the crew and it was for the betterment of myself and that ultimately these people weren't going to think of like I remember bringing things up to them you know at the end of my second season being like do you remember when you did this like I can't believe you said that and they're like um no I don't remember that or like I remember like saying things like I remember when I failed like in this spectacular way that I thought was just like insane and I like cannot believe I did it and I was so embarrassed they're like yep don't remember that and I'm like, really? I'm like, I'm like losing sleep over these things. And you guys probably forgot about it within like two days. It was surprising to me that I was able as a people pleaser and as somebody who hates getting criticized and hates conflict, like just being able to manage uh, those dynamics in an environment where criticism and conflict are kind of part of the, uh, the whole operation. And it's just kind of how things work and not getting too wrapped up in it and trying to learn to be to let take like maybe take things less personally what is the ratio of men to women on these crews um I would say nowadays there's usually one to four women on a 20 person crew you get hired because you're qualified and I think as more women get kind of move up in the ranks and recognize that they can do this or that they are like more than or that they you know fit into this world and that they you know can keep up um I think more and more women will look out and try to get on on hotshot crews which is kind of like more or less the the top level you can always go and and jump or you can go and repel but as far as like ground resources that's like the that's the highest you can kind of go it's kind of fun to build your way up to that and and see where all of your previous training and qualifications put you in the stratum of of a hotshot crew you know uh like for me, I wish I would have gotten a bit more training beforehand. So I would have been a little bit more of an asset. I wish I would have had my EMT. I just got my EMT last spring with the intention of getting back into fire. But now I'm kind of thinking I might not. But um, yeah, I wish I wish I had had a little bit more to give that program. That's my only qualm is that I wish I would have done like maybe one more season on a different crew. So I had uh, more training and then had my EMT to, to be a real asset. Because otherwise, you're just kind of like a, you're just, you're just swinging a tool. I mean, Everyone's just swinging a tool either way, but it's it's nice to be able to have a little more training behind you to make decisions and help out when things go wrong. Is the EMT degree useful just for treating your fellow hotshots out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really yeah. useful. It's nice to have four, usually three or four uh, EMTs on a crew. And then when you break out into modules or when you break out into squads, each squad will usually have an EMT. If you're working far away from each other, um, calling somebody, we've had a couple, we had a couple incidents where there wasn't an EMT nearby and calling somebody to come running down the trail. And it's a, you know, you're 10 minutes away, that 10 minutes of not having the medical kit or not having that medical training on site could be potentially bad. And it's really nice to have people on hand who know how to recognize, uh, recognize symptoms of all the various things that can happen on the line, whether it's heat stroke or, um, dehydration or anaphylactic shock from getting stung by a bee or uh, various chainsaw cuts, um, getting knocked in the head with a tree branch. These things all happen pretty frequently, honestly. Did you ever get seriously injured? I did not. I only had one case where I was like pretty close to getting severely injured. And that was on a fire, my very first fire in Northern New Mexico. And we were on a 
this little fire and we were walking through this stand of trees that we knew was sketchy. Like they, they had burnt out at the roots and we went, we walked up to this really huge pine tree of some sort. I don't remember, but it was huge at the base and it looked like it was fine. It was not burning at the base. It was just kind of like, there was like a little baby fire there and we didn't think anything of it. And, uh, and it, ended up kind of falling directly in line and we walk with we walk in lines and this this tree fell directly in line with our line we were all like looking at it and our bosses were about to walk over to look at the base of it to check under it and uh, and then it started falling like directly at us and so one of my coworkers yelled run left as I was running right and I'm glad he did because left was more clear and I had more of a sort of escape route right was like right into some trees and pretty good chance that if I had continued running right, I would have been hit at least by a branch or something. And there were a couple others that were in the same boat, but we all ended up going left because this one guy said run left. And, uh, but that's like the only story I have. And we didn't get hurt. And everyone kind of like looked at each other and we were just like, did that was bad almost. And then just continued on and nobody ever talked about it again. (laughs) Oh my God. And like the precedent set for you, your first fire. Oh, it scared me shitless. I was like, I was so scared. <laughs> uh, it got. It took me like a month or two to be like, okay, that's not normal. Like, it to be like my, you know, the standard operating procedure here is not that that happens regularly. Like, it still does happen, and you still have to keep an eye out for it, obviously. But um, yeah, that scared me big time. Were there any moments where you questioned your decision to be out there? Um, yes, it's actually funny. We all talk about this. Like, we question it like every day. Like every day you wake up and you get in the buggy or you have breakfast and then you, you know, it's 6am and you get in the buggy and you just sit there and you're like, what fresh hell do they have for us today? Cause you never really know what you're doing that, you know, like they can give you a general idea, like, okay, we're going to continue doing this line or we're going to continue this, whatever. But then you get out there and things always change. So I think like the fact that you never know what's next is really hard for like the human brain to wrap around. It's really hard to like, wake up in the morning and have no clue what the rest of the day holds for you until like two minutes beforehand. Like it goes from, oh, we're just mopping up to like, oh shit, things are getting out of control and we need to go to a different part of the fire. And then we need to dig line all night and not get any sleep and perform a burnout and do all this like kind of intense stuff after spending all day thinking we were just going to have like a chill day mopping up, you know? So it's always like, it's like this flexibility um, that I never had to deal with before. And I probably will never have to deal with again, where you're kind of always, it's always in the back of your mind that you could have, yeah, we're at the end of the shift, but there's always a chance shit hit the, hits the fan on some sort of other part of the fire. And they call us in to, to work a night shift, or they call us in to do a last minute, whatever. Um, and so that was, that was kind of tough. And I don't remember what your question was, but I can circle back to that. Whether you ever questioned your decision to be there. So yeah, like that, that constant changing of your, of, of what you're doing and, and constantly questioning if like the next four hours is going to be really, really hard. I think, and then of course, being in those hard moments in like digging line for whatever, 10 or 12 hours straight. It's like the stuff that we get into fire for is the stuff that we like question every decision we've ever made when we're doing it. When we're in the midst of like a really hard shift, you're kind of like, what am I doing? Why on earth did I choose to do this? And then you get to the end of the shift and it's very satisfying. And you're like, oh, that was so sick. I can't wait to do it again. And you wake up the next day and you do it again. And it's like, if you're not questioning your decision-making every like 
like every couple of hours on a hard shift on a fire, then you're probably doing it wrong. At the moment, you're always questioning it. You're talking with your crew members and you're like, why are we even here? Like, what are we doing? Like, I wish I was at a barbecue with my friends right now. And then you get to the end of the shift or the end of the assignment. And it's just so it's like this level of satisfaction that I haven't really found anywhere else. Something about those really masochistic things, totally. you know, mm-hmm. that are so satisfying that you quickly have amnesia yep. about it. That's exactly it. It's like short-term memory loss. It's like, we keep doing it. Like we get to the end of the season and we're like, I never want to do that again. That was the worst. And then the next April, we're like crawling back for more. We're like, okay, we want one more season. And it's always one more season. It's always like, I think I'm just going to do one more season. And then you get stuck in it. It's similar to running, I would say, like on on a shorter, more acute scale where you're like running and you're like, why am I doing this? Like I could turn around right now. I could stop right now. I could walk. I could be doing virtually anything else. And then you finish your run when it's so satisfying. You're like, I'm glad I finished it because I was trying to convince myself the whole time to turn around. (laughs) Yeah, it it seems unfair to compare this to running just because one is a very selfish activity and and one isn't. But I think it is, at least for me, it's the closest thing I can relate to. Totally. I know it's hard. I could get into like the motivations of, of fire. It's like... I feel a little egotistical talking about it sometimes. The fire community is on a general scale, very humble, and they tend to not take very kindly to people who kind of brag about the job or brag about being like heroes, like which is what not what I'm doing at all right now. Yeah, and in cool. fact, I was say, literally not what you're doing. <laughs> but in fact, yeah, it's, it's it, like the motivation for a lot of people. It's like, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It is like kind of selfish because like the reason I got into it was like for personal growth and- yeah, like the sort of byproduct of that was, you know, helping out and working in these landscapes that I'd, that I'd never seen before and like, you know, fighting and, and working on fires and saving houses, saving babies, whatever. But like a majority of the work that we do is not actually really saving anything. It's often saving timber stands, maybe some infrastructure. I think I've really been on one fire where something that we did now, I would two or three, but nonetheless, not a lot of fires where something that we did directly impacted a a community like directly like saved a community was that just a byproduct of where you were stationed or can that be applied to wildland firefighting across the country that most of the work you're doing isn't directly impacting a, a community yeah it's it's hard because yeah a lot of the time it feels pointless what you're doing you're out there and you're digging line on some ridge line that's 15 miles from the nearest like tiny little town and like Eastern Oregon and, or central Oregon. And you're like, what are we even doing here? Like it's September, you know, it rained last week. It's going to rain tomorrow. Why are we digging line? Why don't we just let this thing burn and let the rains of the fall of like the, of September and October put it out because that's, you know, obviously in the heat of August, it's a little different. Like sometimes, you know, you are putting line in on a ridge line in the middle of nowhere in the effort to prevent any further spread towards the town because fires can make huge runs. As we saw with the bear fire last year, he made a huge run after it had been kind of managed for a couple of weeks. And then it kind of made a huge run. And we've seen that happen in a couple of fires. That's every fire manager's worst nightmare, like being out and like not having people out digging line, even if it's in the middle of nowhere and it feels like it makes no sense. Like you don't want that thing to pick up and go in some sort of wind event or some sort of red flag event. A lot of what we do feels pointless and we're not like usually directly adjacent to a community or we're not like directly impacting a community. That work can be construed as being critical for 
the safety of these communities that are even five, six, 10 miles away. Sometimes we're working in private timber stand areas. Those are resources too. And there's infrastructure, there's, um, there's reservoirs, there's all sorts of things that, that need to be protected as well. But, you know, a lot of the time the suppression side of things is just a Band-Aid and like suppressing fire. This is like a huge soapbox and, uh, and suppressing fire and especially suppressing fire that could burn up to a community is just further exacerbating the conditions within that that landscape, within that little buffer zone that will contribute to a fire ultimately burning through that in the future. Finding ways to safely burn through that buffer area, probably not going to be a wildfire situation, but like maybe through prescribed fire or whatever. Finding ways to burn those buffer zones between communities and fire-prone landscapes is like pretty critical. And it's something that fire crews don't do. We are almost mm -hmm. exclusively suppression focused and suppression is well known in the fire community and outside the fire community as being like not super beneficial, actually not beneficial at all. It's benefited us in that we've saved communities, absolutely, and that we've like saved the livelihoods of people and we've saved lives in general. But in terms of setting ourselves up for bigger wildfires in the future, in these critical zones between communities and fire-prone landscapes especially, it's hard to say how beneficial suppression really has been. And when 100% of the work we do or the work that fire crews do, I can't say we anymore, but 100% of the work that fire crews do is suppression almost. Not 100, but maybe in my experience, 80%. We would do a few prescribed fires in the spring, sometimes in the fall. But I think we really need to reframe where we're putting our fire resources and how we're using our fire resources and especially like how our fire resources are like being compensated and how long they're on the clock and just kind of how they're structured in general so that we can get them out to do more prescribed fire and more thin thinning and things like that. That was a total yeah, soapbox. Okay. <laughs> no, I'd love to dig, dig into this some more and maybe kind of going back historically a little bit. I know that before America was colonized, many tribes mm -hmm. did prescribe burnings. Yeah. They, they really lived in tandem with wildfire. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we moved away from that into this very suppression-focused regime. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Indigenous folks have always been, obviously, more in tune with the landscape. And I would normally defer to a tribal member for this information. But I've spoken with a few tribal members for the podcast and and their general consensus was, yeah, their tribes have long used cultural burning for ecological benefit, for cultural reasons, to encourage the growth of plants for medicinal purposes, just edible plants in general, for move, like ease of, ease of movement, ease of hunting, all these things. And they just knew the ecological benefit. They understood that areas that were recently burned have a huge influx of these wonderful medicinal and edible plants that they relied on. And also mm -hmm. just generally plants that were eaten by deer and bison and all these things. So anyway, that's the general basis of it was that they've always kind of done this. And especially in places that are fire prone and that would normally be burning through with lightning and stuff. There's this mosaic pattern on the landscape that was created through the burns of tribes and then the burns that were occurring naturally through lightning strikes. And we lost that mosaic pattern for the most part. We started suppressing fires. The European colonizers came in and they recognized after they started building railroads and building homes, they started being like, well, we can't have these like random fires occurring because we have all these things at risk now. Classic colonizer, like not recognizing the benefits of this thing that had been happening on the landscape for thousands of years, if not longer, millennia, really. That was like probably like early, mid 19th century. And then you get into the 1900s and you 
have these sorts of cultural burns, like outright, like arresting people and um, making it illegal to do any sorts of burns like this. And then you have like the big burn of the 19, the 1910 fires, the big burn in Idaho and Montana, and that burned millions of acres. And it kind of set up the policy of full suppression firefighting. It kind of allowed for the creation of that policy because they were like, well, we're alert, like we lo- we're losing railroads, we're losing homes, we're losing lives. We have to make sure that these things don't keep happening. And America being like the militaristic force that it is like kind of set about cutting out wildfire in a militant sort of fashion, the full suppression firefighting like really took off and they did a really good job of it until the eighties and nineties when it started backfiring. People started recognizing that full suppression firefighting was just producing forests that were unhealthy and were exacerbating natural wildfires that were occurring or, or human starts that were occurring and starting to like kind of blow up and, and move a lot faster than they naturally would. That's generally the history. And now we have a sort of resurgence. I think indigenous and cultural burning have been taking place on a small scale, even since they were technically outlawed. I spoke with an indigenous elder a couple days ago, and he was talking about how his mother was like, had learned how to burn from her parents. Um, and her his mother was born in 1911. So like, he was learning tactics that were learned in the mid 1800s, probably, and had been passed down through the generations. And his mother was like, I'm not, I'm not letting these people tell me not to do this. Like I know how to protect my own land and I know how to protect my own crops. And that's through these like tiny little prescribed fires. So even if it's like a half acre on the back 40 or a quarter acre or a couple hundred feet of their yard, just to create that essential buffer between an actively spreading wildfire and your home, these indigenous people knew fire behavior. They learned it early on. He is now a practitioner in his community, in his tribe, and he's teaching his nieces, nephews, grandkids, great-grandkids. He's teaching all these these youth how to burn using the tactics that he learned from his mother. But it's just like super cool to see that very clear line of influence from very much like pre-colonial times to now and all how, how, how those tactics and cultural influences survived. Yeah. Do you think that this indigenous philosophy is at all trickling into mainstream U.S. government? A lot of fire practitioners, especially in Northern California, I found defer to the indigenous tribes in the area for a lot of their practices. And oftentimes they will invite tribal members to come and help with the burning or the tribal members themselves will be coordinating these burns. That's especially in Northern California. It'd be really cool to see more tribes around the country gain that sort of authority and maybe gain like the training necessary because unfortunately each state has these really specific training requirements that you need and and also just simply insurance requirements, liability requirements that you need in order to do these burns, even these couple acre burns. And that's a huge barrier. And I think that there's a movement in the fire community towards let, breaking those barriers down and, and helping the public in general recognize what indigenous tribes have known all along, which is that da- like fire, if you know how to use it, is not dangerous. And in fact, is incredibly beneficial ecologically and in their case, culturally. And in our case, I think we could learn a lot from that. I think we could probably stand to learn the cultural benefits of fire too. This sort of community collaboration where you're going to somebody's plot of land and you're burning an acre and you have eight-year-olds there and you have elders there and you have a variety of people there wearing blue jeans or 
flannels, like not wearing like fancy fire clothes. You don't need all that stuff. You don't need all the gear. The traditional knowledge that is shown in how Indigenous pr practitioners use fire, I think that is something that we could all stand to learn from. And I think that's the movement of the fire community right now is just finding a way to make fire less scary and to find a way to make it to make people understand it better so that we can use it more because we need to start using it more. That's the only way we're going to uh, stop these more intense fire seasons, these more high severity fires is by using fire in really um, collaborative and creative and um, larger scale ways so we can create these critical buffers between infrastructure and human settlement and all this. And I think we have a lot to learn from the indigenous perspectives on fire burn on, on, on burning in that realm. And also just the indigenous perspective on like being connected to your landscape and having sort of a, you know, feeling like you're part of this landscape and that you can't just exist within it, like sort of superficially, like you have to be an active member of it. Um, and you have to be an active sort of participant in the way that these landscapes uh, look, because right now we haven't, we've been maybe too active of participants. We've been suppressing it for too long. And I think we need to recognize that it fire very much belongs in these places. Well, it's kind of this division of humanity, society from nature. Exactly. And, and that kind of ties into one of my questions about the wildlife urban interface and how we keep encroaching further and further into these very wildfire prone territories. You see that here in Boulder, Colorado, where I live, I went on a run yesterday up Sunshine Canyon, where there was this really bad wildfire maybe eight or nine, 10 years ago. But I couldn't help but thinking as I was running up this canyon, how maybe houses just shouldn't be in this area. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have thoughts about that from a policy standpoint? Yeah. The interesting thing about the wildland urban interface is that everyone thinks it's rich people who live in the wildland urban interface. Everyone's like, oh, those rich people with their cabins up in like these box canyons mm -hmm. overlooking Los Angeles. Like, and you're like, oh, so dumb. I, I, they shouldn't be like, they should know to build their multi-million dollar houses elsewhere. But the reality of it is that a majority of the people who live in the wildland urban interface are vulnerable communities, people who live in more rural areas. A lot of the time they're migrant communities or they're English second language communities. These communities that don't have a choice. It's often more impoverished neighborhoods. It's hard to say, but but I think there's a huge misconception that it's only rich people who live in the wildland and urban interface. And I think it's very detrimental because when a fire affects an impoverished neighborhood on the edge of a tiny little rural town in the middle of nowhere in Oregon or California or Washington, it's really, really difficult for those kinds of communities, for those types of communities to rebuild. And oftentimes, I think like a lot of the time, in, they don't have insurance against fire. And so you have these cases of, of communities burning. You have Paradise, for example, and the homeless population just skyrocketed in nearby Chico, California after the campfire. I think it's really detrimental and not that you were saying this at all. I'm just saying like as a general rule, I feel like I see a lot of people talking about rich people living in their cabins and their second homes up in the mountains. And I think it's detrimental to the uh, conversation in general to think that it's only well the people who are affected by the wildfires in this wild and urban interface. Well, it seems like an extension too of just environmental injustice in general yeah. where same thing with the fact that dumps are put in low-income neighborhoods a lot of factories around here in Colorado that have a lot of air pollutants 
are in low-income neighborhoods. It all kind of works together in a way or is part of the same issue. It does. Speaking of the media portrayal, what else do you think the media, mainstream media is getting wrong about wildfires? Well, the general consensus is that it's too dramatic. It's like often far too apocalyptic. And that's the nature mm -hmm. of media is that they're going to seek out the stories that are dramatic and the stories that include heroic, life-saving, whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, the nature of the media is that they're going to like look for the retardant drops. They're going to look for the people doing the work on the ground and that's great. They're going to I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but mostly the general viewpoint in the fire community is that the media could definitely stand to learn about the benefits of fire and about good fire, we call it, uh, and, and maybe do more coverage on fire as a tool and fire as a resource and not, not mm -hmm. necessarily always painting it as this negative and, and really detrimental force. Um, it can be. I think there's yeah, it, 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 fire is good until it affects human settlement or until it affects people's livelihoods. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to make that I'm not undermining like the experiences of people who have had their homes burned down or who have lost people in wildfires, because that is experienced by a lot of people in this country and it's going to be experienced by more people. But the only way out of that is by recognizing that fire can be good and can be incredibly ecologically beneficial. And additionally, I think that there's a lot more media coverage that can be done on mitigation strategies before fire. That's a lame story though. You know, NBC news isn't going to like go to some town in California and be like, these guys are cutting down the trees in their backyard so that they have less wildfire risk. Or like these people put on a tin roof or like this person put in like different filters or whatever. That's not a fun story. So it's rec I recognize that that's like not going to be something that happens. But on the other hand, like, for local news outlets and for thing for you know regional news outlets, it's critically important to talk about mitigation strategies, to talk about people that are doing that mitigation work, to people to talk about the local prescribed burn associations or the local tribes who are doing that critical mitigation work, but also to go into those towns that maybe didn't have that eat that critical work done and burned over and just showing like the reality of rebuilding uh, a community that maybe was largely um, living in poverty or people who are already sort of disenfranchised and aren't able to rebuild in the capacity that somebody that's wealthy and living in the foothills above Los Angeles might be able to rebuild. Um, I think those are all really critical stories. And just, I think there's a lot of news outlets that are doing that. I would just like to see it done on a broader scale. And I'd like to see it done. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see people not forget about fires immediately after the heat of the fire season. So August, September, I'd like to see people talking about fire throughout the season or throughout the winter too. Like these are the things that are being done for next fire season or like these are the predictions that we have for next fire season. This is how you can prepare or like this is how um, the recovery is going on this fire that happened last summer. Like just making sure that it's kind of in people's consciousness year round because I think that's what it's going to take to get people to really want that deeper connection to their landscape and really like have more of a an accountability to the way that fire affects that landscape. At least, I mean, for better or for worse, you can say that getting outside and being on the trails, walking down trails that have on, gone through wildfires, that's a, a good way to connect, right? Absolutely. You can, you know, maybe helping people recognize what a high severity fire looks like um, after it's burned. You know, obviously it's like the skeletal trees, like blackened skeletal trees. And um, also 
telling people that like there's a good chance that what they're walking through probably has been affected by fire in the last 10 to 15 years. You just can't, you just don't notice it. And that's like the good kind of fire is just this low severity, like kind of clears out the underbrush, makes it easier to hike. Oh, awesome. We're kind of in this weird juxtaposition maybe where wildfire is really necessary. We've been suppressing it. And now we're seeing these really intense wildfires at this unprecedented scale that are covering bigger swaths of land. I mean, it felt like Colorado was on fire all summer last year. The air quality was really bad. It definitely was not a fun place to be recreating outside for most of August. Why have we gotten to this point? Yeah, well, definitely the suppression thing. I think the forests are like kind of catching up with what, like now that they have these sort of extreme conditions to work under, like you have more red flag warning days, uh, you have, which means essentially uh, you have really high temperatures, you have really low humidity and you have maybe high winds. Those are like prime conditions for wildfires to spread and to spread quickly. So the more days you have like that and the more starts that you have, so we might have starts, we always have human starts, um, there's always unattended campfires. There's always somebody leaves a chain off the back of their truck and it starts a spark that um, gets into the grass. Uh, just various types of human starts, often a majority of the time accidental in some capacity. And then you have the lightning starts. And if you have like this sort of amalgamation of like perfect conditions, so you have the start, you have the red flag warning, and then maybe you have like, for example, during the Labor Day firestorm, we call it last fall, where we had all these active fires on the ground that were burning kind of like they were already burning big time because of a lightning storm. So you have this like very specific circumstance that happened where you have this, these two series of lightning storms coming through, starting a bunch of remote fires that aren't usually started by humans. You know, you never get fires in these areas started by humans, like up on these huge ridge lines that nobody ever goes to, no hiking trails nearby um, and burning in areas that haven't burned and in red flag warnings all up and down the West Coast. And then you have a huge east wind event occur, which east wind events are pretty rare. So you have these winds, um, you know, these dry winds coming off the plains, coming off of Western Oregon and Western Washington and the sort of Great Basin area. And those dry winds just absolutely fanned those flames because they weren't the, they weren't the more wet, like mellow winds coming off of the ocean. They were the dry winds. And that just absolutely blew things up. And if that east wind had happened on a day where those fires hadn't been burning on the ground, or if those east wind events had happened during a summer where we didn't have a bunch of lightning storms that started these huge remote fires, uh, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But because of like those very specific set of circumstances, like you have these forests that are primed for burning, you have red flag warnings, you have a bunch of lightning starts, you have uh, this crazy wind event like that contributed to what was one of the worst firestorms in U.S. history, like kind of second to the big burn in the in 1910, um, you know, entire towns being burned over. And I think those conditions, uh, like you can't really blame an east wind event on climate change, but, you know, those sorts of sets of conditions are going to just keep falling into place as we get uh, deeper and deeper into both climate change and into forests that are really unhealthy and kind of drought ridden and you have bug kill and you have overgrowth and you have all these things. So it's like, it's not one specific reason, but when three or four of those circumstances line up perfectly, you have a recipe for like, for really, really large wildfires. And I think we are absolutely primed for more of those, whether those conditions line up again for the next couple of seasons will be 
interesting because again, if that East wind ha hadn't happened, it wouldn't have been as big of a fire season last year, but because it happened that one or two day event caused like a massive amount of fire growth moving forward. Yeah. I think like uh, the severity of fires is just going to continue to grow, you know, but also these fires are doing like for every 2% of those fires that reach human settlement and result in disaster result in the loss of livelihoods, the, the loss of homes, the loss of lives um, for every 1% or 2% of a fire that that does that you have 95 or 98% of a fire that's doing really critical ecological work that's protecting other communities from future fire seasons and from future fires. So it's important to remember um, that you can have these disastrous fires that are disastrous in a sliver of where they've burned. And then the vast majority of it is still doing really critical work that's protecting um, other areas, even if they're burning at a high severity which actually, like I've, I've heard recently that, um, I don't know where I've heard this from, but I've heard that the severity of fires is really not out of proportion okay. for the historical norms. I think most fires burn with like a two to three percent at a high severity, which is like crowning, um, you know, fire up in the canopy and you can only really fight it with aircraft. Um, but, you know, if you have a fire with only two to three percent high severity, then you're doing pretty well. And um, that's, a, I feel like a vast majority of fires kind of burn in that realm, a low to moderate severity. And um, I think 98% of the fires that we see in the U.S. don't impact any human settlement, that they don't, don't impact any infrastructure, they don't impact any resources at risk, we call it. And they're just out there burning and nobody cares about them because they're not doing anything, they're not destroying anything. But 2% of the fires that we see in the U.S. are the ones that kind of end up on the news and are huge and burn into human settlements. So... It's a fun little stat for you. <laughs> so even though we have kind of these confounding variables of climate change, wildfire suppression, and then you mentioned bug kill, is that mostly beetle kill? Yep. And so that's that's related to climate change as exactly. well, right? Yep. Yeah, you just have all these different elements that are contributing. Like you can't blame it on any one thing. Even though we have those variables, it seems like the wildfires we're seeing today are still in that ecological homeostasis realm where what is happening now is really what we need to be happening yeah. for the long-term health of these ecosystems. Yes, exactly. Like they're resetting. They're like, they're doing what they, they should be doing. It's just, uh, you know, it's just like humans have, have sort of um, converged with those landscapes that would normally naturally burn. I don't know. It's, it's really, it only really becomes a problem with human settlement or with human, with, with homes and cabins and, and infrastructure. Um, and so as we continue to push further and further into these places, uh, it, you're going to have more disastrous fires and that's problematic because, um, it's just going to continue to frame media coverage as this being a very disastrous apocalyptic force. Um, when in reality, like I said, 98% of fire that burns in the West is, healthy is low to moderate severity is out in the middle of nowhere where nobody can see it. And you maybe can smell the smoke in the valleys, but otherwise it's, you know, it's just doing its thing out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but those 2% of fires that impact uh, homes and lives are the ones that frame policy and everything for the remainder of those fires mm -hmm. and for the remainder of the landscapes that rely on those fires. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, that's an issue. It is. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's like, I have to keep falling back on the fact that like we should be protecting human lives and human settlements and infrastructure because those are pretty critical. And like, we should just find ways to 
be building more resilient communities and to be mitigating those risks beforehand. And that's really, it's really hard to do in some of these lower income neighborhoods on the wild in the wild and urban interface. It's really easy to tell wealthy people who have that extra income to be like, okay, well, you need to get this different kind of material roof, or you need to bring somebody in to clear out this brush or limb your trees. It's really easy for somebody who's wealthy to spend a couple thousand dollars getting those things done. It's a lot harder to have people who are probably working more and have less disposable income. It's hard to go into those communities and say, like, you need to do this really critical work in order to protect yourself and your home. So finding ways to create buffers and and provide the funding for those things in those communities will be critical. The last follow-up to that is, I mean, obviously we just need better policies in place. Like this is not going to be solved on an individual scale. I think it will be. I think maybe that's like the sort of radical, like revolutionary idea here is not that we're going to make change through large scale efforts. We're not going to make change through large scale prescribed burns that take two to three years to get the permitting available. You know, sometimes it does take two to three years to get some of these seven, 800 acre prescribed fires off the ground that are done by agencies. Well, in that time frame, you could do 700 one acre burns or 350 two acre burns and be hitting those same acreage and same numbers. And it just requires like a daily or weekly or monthly reckoning with like what needs done and like what areas could use a quick little burn and, um, and then like empowering those landowners and empowering those homeowners, empowering community members and indigenous and tribal members to be able to just go out and do that without feeling like it's unsafe and doing so in a time when it isn't unsafe and then having the resources in place should something go wrong and having the liability coverage provided because it's very expensive to get liability coverage for this kind of thing. And that's a huge barrier to entry. But if you can find a way to not require as much liability insurance or to bring agencies on board to help out who already have that insurance, I think the movement really is to make it more individual, to make it more like homeowner and landowner specific, where they're like holding their local officials accountable. Like I have this 10 acres behind my house that is so overgrown and so gross. And I know it's going to burn when it does. uh, And when it does, it's going to be bad. And just going to like their local officials and just making sure that they know um, or that making them feel empowered to be able to take those sorts of decisions and take those sorts of conversations to their, um, their, their local council members. I think thinking on a smaller scale really is maybe the, the path forward. I'm sensing that from a lot of people that I talk to that, getting these tiny organizations or these, you know, these little collaborations between landowners, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm going to burn 10, I'm going to burn five acres on my property today. Can you come over and help out? And like having like community, this sort of community engagement between, um, between landowners and homeowners and local organizations. I think that would be really cool. And I think that would be the way, you know, we like thinking on that smaller scale, thinking about like just the 10 acres behind your house or just the five acres in your backyard or, um, or just the little, the little strip of buffer that you want to create around your community. You know, those things are pretty manageable versus like, we want to burn off this entire national forest or like this 700 acres. Um, those things can feel really inaccessible and really unapproachable, especially on a community basis. You are so amazing. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Babe. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. All Talk right, soon. Bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for sharing your insight and wisdom with us, Amanda. We were only able to scratch the surface on this topic. So if you'd like to learn more about Amanda and wildfires, make sure to tune into Amanda's podcast, Life with Fire. You'll be able to take a deep dive with Amanda and a wide range of experts on all things wildfire. Also, make sure to swing over to Instagram and give Amanda a follow at a underscore M-O-N-T-H-E-I at a underscore Monti. Life with Fire a follow at Life with Fire Pod. And of course, Out and Back a follow at Out and Back Podcast. Now, did you enjoy this episode? Did you hate it? Either way, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We love learning from your feedback. And finally, make sure if you haven't already to swing over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to pick up a Gaia GPS premium membership at a 20% discount, where you can have access to wildfire maps, smoke maps, air quality maps, and every other map you could possibly need for your backcountry travels. Until next time, this is Shanti along with Abby. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. And we'll see you next time on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Bye-bye. 